Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. We're going to look today at the Gospel according to St. John, chapter 6, verses 51 to 58. This is, of course, from the, uh, from the Eucharistic chapter that John has, and it's uh, the culmination of the Bread of Life discourse that Jesus gives in the synagogue in Capernaum. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a critical uh, gospel because it deals with the center and, uh, as we say now, the source and summit of our faith, which is the sacred Eucharist, which is the Holy Eucharist. And it talks to us about kind of what it means and all of the problems that that, 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 that meaning brings with it. And um, first of all, Jesus has already been, been talking about um, what the, the Father, and he says, I am the living bread which has come down from heaven. And uh, so he's coming then, he's saying, from the Father, and so the Father is the one giving the gift. Um, but anyone who eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I shall give, and now it's Jesus giving it, is my flesh for the life of the world. So what does, what does that mean? We know that within the broader umbrella of the Christian community that the whole idea of a Eucharistic text that talks this intimately about the relationship between Jesus and ourselves is summarily rejected by the majority. Um, and so we ask ourselves, where does our interpretation come from? Is it biblical or, or is it something that comes um, from somewhere else? It's something that comes from other people's experiences or insights or so forth. Well, if we look at it scripturally, if we look at it in what the text actually says, we certainly can feel very secure that the Catholic interpretation is in fact the authentic biblical interpretation. I am the living bread which has come down from heaven. Bread is the staff of life. Bread is the source of life for them. Bread is the foundational part of all of their diet. And, uh, and remains so, um, has remained so up until the present age actually, in almost all diets. Um, that uh, the only thing that ever replaced the bread was in the Far East, and that, that was replaced with, with, with rice. But it is basically the substance of our living. And so Jesus says, I am the living substance of your life, which has come down from heaven. And anyone who partakes of this substance will live forever. If I am the living or, or origin of your existence, and you eat this living origin of your existence, then that means you participate in the life that it has, which is life forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh for the life of the world. Um, John uses the word flesh and not body. That's the difference between sarx and soma. And, uh, and so, and the flesh is, 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 um, 
the body is, is more, uh, we've talked about this before, the body is very much a part of the person. And the body might have, when we say the body, it might have a, diff a kind of a connotation of the person themselves as a whole, whereas the, whereas the flesh means actually the flesh of the human person. And so, um, th so it's, it's, while these terms can be used indifferently, there is a very, very subtle nuance between them. And the fact that John uses this in, in his sixth chapter, um, the Eucharistic chapter, means that he's talking maybe a little bit more graphically and a little bit um, more realistically about what this bread of life really is. So the Jews started arguing with one another and they said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? In other words, what is he doing? And, you know, and, and there's, there's, there's nuance in this also because they can be saying, they can be saying, and many interpret it as such, that you know, he's inferring some form of cannibalism. Um, and, and yet at the same time, while flesh is designated of the flesh of the person, it also means, it has a more intimate sense of who the person is. And so it does mean his flesh, but it also means the depths of his person, the intimacy of his person. And so Jesus replied to them, and he said, because the Jews are saying, in a sense, we have every right to expect that the Jews knew what he was talking about, because the Jews did believe that they participated in the life of Abraham, and that that participation in the life of Abraham was physical. It had to do with his blood flowing in their veins. And so they know what it means to take another person into themselves and to become part of them. And they're very, very particular in their dietary laws because they can't eat the flesh of animals that, with the blood in it because to do so would be put the life force of an animal within them and it would be kind of an animal, they would therefore have an animal life within them. So they have a sense that Jesus is talking about covenantal relationships. They have every right to have a sense about that. But we also know they have no intention of seeing it that way or of understanding it that way. And so Jesus says to them, I tell you most solemnly, if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in you. Anyone who does eat my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Well, here we go. The bread that I am the living bread come down from heaven. I am the living source of your existence. I am the substance which keeps you alive. And if you eat this substance, you will live. And the bread that I give is my flesh. So if you eat my flesh, then you will have my life in you. And if you have my life in you, and he says that, then anyone who does not eat my flesh and drinks, and then anyone who does eat my flesh and drink my blood has eternal life. For the life of Jesus is eternal. When we take that into ourselves, then we are participating in his eternal life. And so basically he's meaning exactly what he says, and we're going to see certainly later on in the, in the other Gospels and in St. Paul exactly how he intends this to be understood. And I shall raise him up on the last day, so he'll have eternal life, which means if he has eternal life, he will not die. And, uh, and so that he will have life forever. Death becomes a passageway instead of a terminal point. And so, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink, Jesus says. Graphic, 
graphic. He's making it so that they can't misunderstand what he's saying. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I live in him. Yes, this is the whole, and this is, this is quintessentially a Hebrew concept because the Hebrews believed that Abraham lived in them. And if Abraham lived in them, it was because his blood flowed in their veins. And it stems from the first covenant when, when uh, the angel um, keeps Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. And God, because of Abraham's fidelity, makes a covenant with him and says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. Why would this make him, what, what is this great promise? This, as long as his descendants lives, he lives. And so it is promising him, in a sense, eternal life without using an abstraction of eternity, but concretizing it in progeny. <clears throat> so as I, who am sent by the living Father, myself draw life from the Father. So now he's saying, just as I draw my life from the Father, because the Father and I are one, so whoever eats me will draw life from me. It's clear. He's taking us and saying, I will draw you into the triune life of God, which is eternal, if you feast on my flesh and on my blood, because then I am within you, and you are within me, and we are one. And this, you know, has all sorts of implications for it as well. Because, you know, and, and I, I mentioned this before, but I think that it's, that it's never a bad idea to be repetitive on some things. But in this whole idea where St. Augustine says we are predestined and St. Paul says we are predestined, the Calvinists took that on a personal note and they meant, well, oh, the God creates some people to go to heaven and he creates some people to go to hell. Um, but that's not what the scripture says, not at all. Because what he's saying right here is that predestination is we share in his predestination for we are part of him we are riding into eternity in the Lord. And he is part of us and we are part of him. We cannot be separated from him. And if we are separated from him, then we have no life in us and we have no eternal life in us. For this is the bread come down from heaven, not like the bread our ancestors ate, they are dead. But anyone who eats this bread will live forever. All of the implications in this are something that we should be able to reflect upon. This, for instance, John does not have to talk about the institution of the Eucharist as the synoptics do, because he's writing his gospel later on in the story of early Christianity. And as so doing, it is a custom already being practiced. Paul tells us that 30 years before this gospel is written, that uh, that it, what that they, they are already celebrating the Eucharistic feast um, in the primitive Christian community. And why should John explain to them how it all came about when they already know that and they're already practicing it? It, makes, it, would make, it would be a waste of his time and a waste of his effort. Instead, he's going to refocus then on actually what it is that we are doing. Not that the faithful don't know that, but they need some kind of reinforcement, some kind of deeper insight into this practice that they have, into what they tend, what they think that they are doing, what they are, what they are celebrating, and what they do when they gather in community. We find we find a wonderful um, 
reflection on this in the writings of St. Justin Martyr um, in the first century, where he tells us it very graphically, and he puts very, very clearly exactly what this gospel is saying, and he puts it in no uncertain terms and in ways that, that cannot be in any way misinterpreted. And uh, it's just very concrete for Justin Martyr. But with that as a background and that as a, uh, to, to back up what, um, what the Lord is saying, to explain it to the Romans is what Justin Martyr is doing. He's explaining it to non-believers. But the living bread come down from heaven. You know, to combine living and bread, as I said, is to be very, very specific about what is the foundation of our life. That bread, we know, is not a living organism by the time we get to consume it. But we do know that it comes from a living organism. And Jesus is saying that in the Eucharistic bread, that living organism is himself, and he is present in it when we consume it and we eat his flesh and we drink his blood. The blood of the ancestor is to flow in the veins of the descendant. And as long as the blood of the ancestor flows in the veins of the descendant, then <clears throat> the ancestor lives and the descendant is able to be identified as them in the midst of the world. We see this throughout the whole Old Testament, especially in relationship to Abraham. And we see it particularly in Deuteronomy 26.6 in the, in the story of first fruits, where by saying this and doing this, we become then present to that reality in our lives which has delivered us, which is the Passover for the Jews, but which the Jews in their formulae for the first fruits say, my father was a wandering Aramean. He went down into Egypt. Abraham never went down into Egypt, never went down into Egypt. And so, however, he did because his descendants did. And so this is what the, Jesus is referenced then to his blood. It is not just reference to the blood, sacrificial blood that is shed for us on the cross. It's also the blood that will be in us that belongs to him. And that when his blood is in us and part of us, then he lives in us and we live in him. This is why um, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity is able to say that when we receive the Eucharist, we receive, therefore, um, she, she says to the Abbe Chevignard, is this not heaven? Are we not then united with the Christ? And uh, she says she realizes that we only grasp this and understand this um, in a mysterious way, in a way that is shrouded in the darkness of our own intellect, our own mind, our own heart. But that does not in any way um, mitigate the truth of the matter, that the person of Jesus Christ, because this bread that comes down from heaven, this life that is Jesus, is his person, that his person is within us and we are within him. This is the foundation, once again, as I said, of predestination. We do not, we are not individually predestined through creation by God. We are predestined through our relationship with Christ. For Christ himself, is predestined to return to the Father, for he is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. And so by becoming part of him, and as long as we stay incorporated into him, 
then we share in his predestination. When we separate ourselves from him, then we have no idea where we go or what goes because the Lord does not speak to us about that. He has some very foreboding um, imagery for those who are opposed to him and for those who hate him and for those who persecute him. But simply for those who do not belong, that's up to him to decide. That's not for us to decide. And that's what the great power of excommunication is in the church. The great power of excommunication in the church is that we are separated from this body of Christ, which predestines us to eternal life. It puts us out on our own. Um, I, it, it, and, and oftentimes, you know, we think of as a person, the cosmos is a vast and enormous place and bordering on our own comprehension of infinity. And yet, and to be absolutely alone in the midst of that, depending upon ourselves for our destiny and our future, seems to me at least overwhelming and frightening. It seems to me that to be one with the living God, one with the Creator, one in the community of those who are believers, at least there we seem to be able to have some, some context for our lives, some place to be, some place to go, some destiny to share, some purpose and meaning, rather than simply afloat by ourselves in the cosmos. And so this idea of drawing us into himself, that Jesus drawing us into himself, and to become part of him and he part of us as part of our eternal destiny. What a great, what a great source of consolation that can be. And what a great motivation that is to stay close to the Lord, to stay close to the sacrament, to make use of the sacrament of, of, of reconciliation and penance, to make sure that we are not cut off, to make sure that we are not uh, alienated, to make sure that we are not alone in the cosmos. This is what the church is for. It gathers us together. And so that we have a certain solidarity, we have a certain hopefulness, we have a certain confidence and trust in those around us and in those who lead us and guide us and those who provide for us the flesh and the blood of the Lord. There is, I, I think too, and anyone for anyone who does eat my flesh and drink my blood has life eternal. And then Jesus goes on, and we've seen this before, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, he will participate in my resurrection, for he participates in my life. And if he participates in my resurrection, he participates in my ascension. And if he participates in my ascension, then that means he comes with me into the life of the Father and the Spirit. In other words, our eternity of joy, fulfillment, and happiness is to participate in the divine being in a way that we never could dream of on this earth. And so he says that, and then once again, affirms that he will live in us and we will live in him. And he said, I who am sent by my living Father myself draw life from the Father, so whoever eats me will draw life from me. 
Jesus is comparing us, and he has done this in other places in the scriptures as well, especially in John's gospel. He's comparing his relationship to us with his relationship to us with his relationship to the Father. And that is the Father and I are one. I do nothing but what the Father says. I do what the Father tells me. Father, you know, let this cup pass, but my, your will, not mine, be done. This is the relationship that he offers us with himself. Lord Jesus, your will, not mine, be done. Lord Jesus, let these troubles pass by me, but if not, let me accept them. For I know not the reason for it. It becomes mystery to me, but I do know that it is salvific, and I do know that it is saving. And so I do then share with you this experience in the Garden of Gethsemane, as well as the experience of reunion with your Father. For this is the bread that came down from heaven. And it's very different. I'm not talking about normal bread, he says. The normal bread, people have eaten normal bread for, for eons of time. And we certainly know in this particular way, he's, he's uh, referring to the bread from heaven. He's referring to the manna that covers the desert floor and gives the, the Hebrews bread on their journey through the desert. He's saying, no, it's not like that. They ate that manna. That was a gift from God, and they ate that manna, but they died. Now, anyone who eats my flesh, the bread that is my life, that person will live forever. The whole salvation history is tied up in this particular gospel. For Jesus, who is the word of the Creator, through whom John tells us all things have come to be and without him nothing is. That God who spoke, that God who led, that God who guided the Hebrew people through the many, many millennia of their existence until his coming in the flesh, that he is the same one then who says, now, now become part of me. And this long and ancient journey that culminates in a reunion with the triune God, in a reunion with the Father and the Spirit, this is your life story too, to where my life story becomes your life story because I am in you and you in me. And he says this very, very clearly. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I live in him. To live in him, the Hebrews knew what this meant. They meant that meant that the blood of the ancestor, the spirit, the person of the ancestor dwelt within Israel. The Jerome Bible biblical commentary can say Israel is Abraham and Abraham is Israel. The Bible commentary can say that and the Bible can say that. And now Jesus is offering us that same reality so that we merging into him be, accept him also becoming part of us. And from this we get some of the behavioral norms of, of our faith that you, you always realize that when we, we interact with a brother or a sister, we are re interacting not only with another human person, but we are also reacting to the fact that Christ is in them and they are in Christ. We are acting, therefore, in a certain sense to the presence of God. We can overdo this and uh, we, we, can, we can make it in a way ridiculous, but it's real. And, you know, we see it, for instance, in the great story of St. Martin, <clears throat> who, 
who riding along with his cloak on and so forth, he sees, he sees the beggar who's naked in the cold and he takes off his cloak and gives it to him only to discover that it is the shivering Christ who is standing next to him. This constantly is our story and we're reminded of this. It doesn't mean that, you know, for instance, when we see the, the, the street people, um, we, we have to understand that, that in, in somehow or other, God loves them, and God in somehow or other desires to be part of their life. This doesn't mean that, you know, you give them money and, and, and you have to give them money to acknowledge that, but it does mean that you have to always be respectful of them, and it does mean that you always have to be kind. I know there's arguments, you know, where you give them money and they spend it on drugs or on booze and so forth. Yeah, perhaps that's true. Um, perhaps, you know, um, a lot of times you can offer to buy them some food and they're kind of irate by that. But at the, at the same time, you don't know. And you don't know when you go to church, the people sitting next to you, you have no idea who many of them are often. And, uh, and, but you do know one thing is they follow you up to the communion line that Jesus Christ is in them and they are in him. And therefore... And dealing with them, you are dealing with the presence of Christ somehow or other in the midst of the world. It's the whole, and, and it, it, it's complicated. There's no simplistic interpretation of this. People try to use it, you know, to, to argue about the, the immigrant crisis all around the world. And, uh, and you come into practical problems of national sovereignty versus, you know, love of neighbor and, 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 um, but what does it mean to love the neighbor? There's a legitimate disagreement in all that. There's a legitimate argument. As long as someone is saying, well, they're not even human. As long as someone's saying, you know, well, they're riffraff. As long as someone's not saying, you know, they're worthless people. No, we can never do that. We can understand, and then we have to find a way to treat them humanely. And it's the same way with the troublesome people in our lives, even within families and among friends. To dismiss someone, to cut someone off is grievously sinful because that means you're cutting off a presence of Jesus Christ in the midst of the world. That you're blocking your own capacity to expand who you are and who you know yourself to be and how you understand the human race and how you understand the church. And you're denying that the church is the gathering of the community of those who possess Christ within them and they within him. So there's implications to this. But the fact is, what it tells us basically is that the Eucharist is the flesh and the blood of Jesus Christ. That the Eucharist as the flesh and the blood of Jesus Christ means that Christ is in us and we are in him. It means that we participate in his predestination into eternal life to be one with the Father. It means that our eternity is incorporation into the triune God. It means that somehow or other, throughout the ages, insofar as we eat his flesh and drink his blood, then we are on the pilgrimage, we are on the journey. He is in us, we, are in, we share his life with him, he shares our life with us. We share his trials and we share his difficulties with trust and confidence in his Father, and he shares ours with trust and confidence in him. That there is no time when he is not with us, not among us, not within us. That as long as long as the Blessed Sacrament 
is present in our churches and as long as we consume the flesh and the blood of the Lord, then we are on the road to eternal life with great confidence, great trust, and great hope. And then we can say in a sense because of that with St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, is this not some piece of heaven? Seen darkly, seen without clarity, without great understanding or comprehension, but experienced nonetheless as a step forward in our journey into the mystery of God, into the mystery of our eternal destiny, and into the mystery of our eternal life. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Thank you.